We invite you now to take your Bible and join me by turning to Luke chapter 19 and verse 45. What a privilege we have today of coming together and opening up God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible word. Our passage today is Luke 19, verse 45, continuing down through Luke chapter 20 and verse 8. We're looking at what is a striking passage. It is one that betrays so many of the popular notions we have of Christ. You think about gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus is meek. He is gentle. He is compassionate toward those who come to him, toward those who recognize their need of his compassion and his mercy, toward those who love him, toward those who keep his commandments. But Jesus isn't cowardly. He isn't spineless. He isn't timid. We're looking at an episode in the scriptures here today that has him full of what can only be described as righteous anger. Jesus goes into the temple. Many of you will be familiar with this passage, and he flips tables. He drives out those who bought and sold. He authoritatively declares what the place should be. In fact, he calls it his house. So this is a very instructive passage for us as we think about what Christ's desire is for the place where he is worshipped. We have it here from his very own lips, his own authoritative word. Listen to what it says, Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, The chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from Man, if we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's ask for the Lord's help as we. Prepare to open up his word. Heavenly Father, we know that faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. 
And so we pray that you would give us ears to hear. We pray that you would give us hearts that are fully open, that are unstopped from all other concerns, that are free from every hindrance that would prevent us from hearing today what you would want to say to us. Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive from you, to receive the the truth that has the power to change lives, that has the power to bring us into conformity with Christ. Be magnified among us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you this, what comes to mind when you think about the place the people of God gather to worship? When you think about church, what comes to mind? You think about singing songs, listening to sermons, or ministry programs, seeing your friends, fellowship, maybe something else. What would you say is the primary distinctive of the gathering place of God's people? Or let me try to get at the question a different way. If you were in a situation where you had to try to find a new church home, uh, perhaps you were relocating for some reason, what would you be looking for? What kind of things would you hope to find on the masthead of the church, as it were? Would you be looking for people your age, certain kinds of programs, children's ministries, a certain style of music? What would you be looking for? In the mind of Christ, if there was one word that was emblazoned across the place his people assembled themselves to worship, It would be prayer. That's what Christ reaches for in this passage as he enters the temple precincts in Luke chapter 19. Just one word, prayer. Our passage today has Jesus coming in to the temple after a very long journey only to find something that seriously disturbed him. Luke gives us a very condensed version of what's happening here, but you can look at the other Gospels and get a bigger picture. What was going on in the temple? Well, this is at, a, at the time of Passover when you have all of these pilgrims traveling up to Jerusalem to worship, to offer sacrifices. And since many of them didn't live in Jerusalem and they were traveling from a considerable distance, Animals would be available to them once they arrived there in the holy city so that they could purchase them once they got there, really just as a matter of convenience. And since it wasn't permitted just to purchase any animal, there were merchants that began to set up uh, pre-approved oxen and sheep and pigeons right there inside the temple courts. Now, it hadn't always been this way. It hadn't always been the case that sacrificial animals were there within the the temple. Uh, Prior to this, we think that probably they were set up on the Mount of Olives. We don't know exactly when the change occurred, but at some point in time, everything was moved inside the temple courts. 
And so you have this line of business operating right inside the house of God. In fact, there's some evidence that the the Romans got involved, that the, the Roman establishment saw that there was an opportunity here to make a profit and that they entered in to the whole affair. Not for the sake of worship, of course, but to get involved in in the business end of things. Now, in addition to this, there was a temple tax that was being collected, half a shekel. Every uh, year at the annual census, every Jewish man who was over the age of 20 was required to pay a a tax. Uh, Originally, this was used in the, the construction of the tabernacle, and then later it was used in support of the temple. And that's why these money changers were there. You would come in with your Roman currency and then they would exchange it for you uh, and, and get it into the proper coinage. That's also how they made their living, their income. They would charge a fee to convert your money. Just like if you were to go to an exchange bank uh, in a foreign country today. Well, that brings us to Christ's objection. What, what was it that made Jesus Uh, so indignant on this occasion. Well, we need to clear some things out of the way. It wasn't the tax itself that Jesus found objectionable. That was commanded by God. In fact, uh, the scriptures make it clear that Jesus was faithful to pay that tax. Uh, You might remember on one occasion where uh, the tax collectors come to Jesus, and Jesus tells Simon Peter to go fishing and uh, to cast his line and look in the mouth of the very first fish he caught, and he would find a whole shekel there. Well, there was the half shekel tax for Jesus and for Peter. Jesus was faithful to pay this tax. So the temple tax wasn't what he objected to, and it wasn't really even the money changers per se. If you look carefully at the uh, the other gospel accounts, you'll find that it it wasn't just the, the money changers that Jesus had dealings with on this particular day. It wasn't just those who were selling animals even. It says that he drove out those who sold and bought in the temple. It was the whole lot of them. Mark tells us that he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So apparently some people were just traipsing through the temple courts, not to worship, but using it as a kind of shortcut just to to make their way from one end of things to the other. And Christ objects to this. He objects to it all. He objects to the way that these practices had so desecrated the sanctity that belonged to the place of God's presence, the place where God's glory dwelled. All of this trade and commerce and hustle and bustle resulted in this atmosphere, not of worship and reverence and solemnity, but of business affairs and concerns over profit and loss, the thing you have to think about tomorrow morning. If you've ever been to an open-air market in a third-world country, uh, you might have a sense of what this would be like, what kind of scene this might uh, conjure up. All of this was going on in the court of the Gentiles, 
that was an area about 35 acres in size. So, so not a small area here. And there would have been bartering and no negotiation. It would have been very loud, very boisterous, the very opposite of what the worship of God calls for. Reverence and awe and the seeking of things that are above. Worship that reflects the unsearchable greatness of our God. They were only yards away from the holy of holies. Imagine this. The place where God's glory dwelled. And the sheer wonder of stepping into that house, the house of God, was gone. It was nothing more than a house of trade. Now, brothers and sisters, Jesus' response here is very instructive, not just for what he says, taking things at face value. It is for that. But looking also at the, the biblical historical context that he draws this denouncement uh, he pronounces against them. That's really where we, we see the heart of his concern and the nature of the problem that was going on that day. In verse 46, Jesus quotes from two different Old Testament passages. Both of them would have been familiar to Jewish listeners, and both of them would have probably been very surprising for Christ's contemporaries to hear and for, him, for them to hear how Jesus situates them alongside the original, original audience of these Old Testament texts. Let me show you what I mean. We're going to look at the second phrase first, but let me read for verse 46 again in its entirety. Jesus says there, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, that you have made it a den of robbers. Well, that phrase, a den of robbers, is a reference to Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 11, where Jeremiah says, Has this house which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Jeremiah chapter 7 is one of the prophet's more scathing rebukes in all of that book. If you look at the context there, uh, you find him doing very much the same thing that the Lord Jesus is doing in the passage we're looking at today, drawing attention to a people who are present in the Lord's house. They are going about all of the rhythms of what appears to be worship. They're going through the, through the motions, in other words. Sacrifices are happening. Prayers are being offered up to God. They're doing all of the things you're supposed to do. The problem is they're doing all of those things while at the same time, Jeremiah says, you oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. They shed innocent blood. You steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely. They give their lives over to all kinds of idolatrous practice. So they do all of those things while at the same time, they attend to all of their religious tradition. Right there within the temple. In fact, they use that. They use their attention 
to religious practice and activity to justify their lawlessness. And they expect God's blessing all of the while. Today we would say that they go to church, they check the box, as it were, and then they live like the world. They look at their religiosity as a kind of panacea that absolves them of sin, that immunizes them against the judgment of God. Well, it was to these very religious yet wicked people, Jeremiah says, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. That gives you an idea of how they looked at their relationship with the Lord. They practiced idolatry, they broke the commandments of God, and then they would run back to the temple like it was some kind of spiritual rabbit's foot, some kind of safe place. You could put it this way, they trusted in religion instead of trusting in God. They trusted in their association and attachment to a place instead of their attachment by faith to the one true and living God. That's where their hope was. They said, this is the temple of Yahweh. And Jeremiah says, you trust in these deceptive words to no avail. They won't do anything for you. That kind of thinking can't help you. The men of Judah in that day, they reasoned to themselves, well, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how I live. I can run back into this kind of spiritual safe house and everything's going to be just fine. And and Jeremiah calls it a den of robbers. That image in the mouth of Jesus Christ is amplified even further because in Christ's mouth, that den of robbers, the temple isn't the place where they go to hide, it's where they go to do their business. You see how serious the situation here is. Well, the fact that Jesus pulls from this ancient text shows us that just like it was true in Jeremiah's day, just like it was true in the first century, there's always this temptation to forget the reason that the people of God come together. There is always this temptation to slip into vain tradition, to put our our hope and our confidence in religion instead of the Lord, and in doing so, profane and corrupt the worship of God not render to him the kind of worship that he deserves. I wonder if there are deceptive words, uh, deceptive ways of thinking uh, that religious people can fall into today. I go to church. I've been baptized. I sing the songs. I give offerings. I was raised in a Christian home. Friends, one of the the questions that comes to us in this text is this. Where do I get my confidence before the Lord from? Where do I get my confidence before the Lord God Almighty? Where does my assurance rest? Is it in the finished work of Christ? Christ. 
How am I able to come before the living God? Have you obtained access by faith into this grace in which God's people stand? If that's so, then praise be to God. Praise be to God. Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But know that this is the only way by which we can come. This is the only way by which we can come and offer true and acceptable worship to the Lord. Christ does not approve of empty religion that goes through the motions, that trivializes the presence of the Lord, that forgets that God is a consuming fire, that does not offer him acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Brothers and sisters, there is such a thing Mark it in your mind as unacceptable worship. There is. When the men of Judah uttered that that mantra to themselves, this is the temple of Yahweh, they thought, I'm safe here. God won't touch me as long as I'm here because he would never allow anything to touch the temple. Well, Jeremiah advised that they take some time to visit Shiloh a place where years before the tabernacle had been set up and the Lord had allowed the Philistines to subsequently ravage. Here you have another Shiloh-type event looming on the horizon with the destruction of Jerusalem. And so we come to Christ's desire for his gathered people. What is it, dear ones? God did not intend his temple to be a garage sale or a marketplace. It was to be a place where sinners meet with him, where they have fellowship with him. My house, Jesus said, shall be a house of prayer, a place where appeals are made to God, where things are conducted in such a way so that when you thought about that place, communion with God would be what comes to mind. It would immediately spring to mind. This is a place where I go to fellowship with the Lord. Worship and adoration and thanksgiving and confession and petition and supplication and every kind of prayer that the scriptures mention would be the defining characteristic of that place. Persistent pounding on the door of heaven communing with the Lord who has given us access to him through Jesus Christ. When Jesus lays this out for them, you notice that he says, it is written. This wasn't new revelation. This is the other Old Testament quote I mentioned. It comes from Isaiah chapter 56, a passage that speaks so powerfully not just to the Lord's purpose and desire, for his house, but to the scope of his redemptive purposes for the world, that they're not just for Israel. I want to read from that passage from Isaiah 56, beginning in verse 3. Isaiah says there, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, 
who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. All peoples. You see, Isaiah here is already anticipating the salvation of Gentiles who will come into the house of God to do what? To do what, dear ones? To lift up their voices to God in prayer, just as we have come to do today. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that we are, in part at least, God's fulfillment to this very passage? We are, by his grace. The temple has been destroyed. The dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. There is no court of the Gentiles any longer that would prevent us from entering in. There is no priesthood after the line of Aaron. We all come through the great high priest. The Lord Jesus Christ, who holds his priesthood forever. The one who has been lifted up at the right hand of the throne of God, who's able to save to the uttermost those that draw near to God through him. That is what the church is to be marked by. Continual drawing near to God through Jesus Christ. Amen? There is a kind of qualification that we need to make in this passage as we think about making application to our own context. We want to be careful to say that this building, this physical building made of bricks and stones, this is not the temple of the Lord. This is not a sacred space the way the tabernacle or the temple in Jerusalem was. But you are. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The Apostle Paul says. In a similar way, God's people, in a corporate sense, can be described as the temple of the living God. Ephesians 2 and verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, if we are the temple of the Lord, a dwelling place for God, how much more ought our lives to be marked by prayer?
Why is Christ's desire for his people what it is? Let me ask you this. What does a praying church communicate about its identity, about its self-understanding, about how it understands the Lord? Let me give you just three ideas. First, a praying church communicates a genuine saving knowledge of God. It communicates, in other words, a relationship with the Lord. That's probably the first thing, the simplest thing that ought to be said here. Christians are people who talk to God. If there's anything that we draw from this passage, perhaps it's this. It is not enough to be a church-going person. It is not enough to be religious. Do you know Jesus? Do you call on his name? Do you commune with him? Do you enjoy spending time with him, loving him, expressing thanksgiving to him, just pouring out your heart to him? Second, a praying church is a needy church. That's a good thing. A praying church is a church full of, under, of sinners who understand themselves the way God understands them. We're people, in other words, who hear the call of Christ in the gospel, and we respond by coming to him as the spiritual paupers that we are. We throw ourselves on the mercy of God, and then we do that over and over and over again in persistent prayer. We recognize our sinfulness at salvation. We cry out for the forgiveness of sins in believing prayer. And that just begins a pattern of heartfelt, lifelong asking, seeking, knocking, looking to God for grace, for living. Third, a praying church is a church that knows she's in need of the Spirit's power. Power for holiness, power for mission, power to be vessels useful to the master. So brothers and sisters, let's be encouraged. Let's be encouraged to rouse ourselves and take hold of our God who so delights to have us come to him. Let's be encouraged and challenged by Christ's dictum, which extends to our congregation. My house shall be called a house of prayer. It's more than a suggestion. It's more than an encouragement, or even an exhortation. It is a divine injunction that lays upon us today. This is a, an opportunity for all of us to take stock of our lives as individuals, as a church, but to hold ourselves up to the standard of Christ's teaching, certainly we all have room to grow. What can we do by God's grace to move more in the direction of Christ's desire for the church? First, recognize the weightiness of God's presence among us. 
and worship accordingly. If this, what we're doing here today, is nothing more than your average social event, then feel free to make everything light, trivial, and casual. But if God is God, the creator and the sustainer of all things, the one in whom we live and move and have our being, if he is the great end for which all things were made, then let us come before him soberly, reverently, and in the fear of him. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. First Chronicles 16, 11. What I want to emphasize here is the continual, regular, persistent kind of prayer that is so often enjoined upon God's people in the scriptures. I shall give you just a small sampling. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Pray without ceasing. Pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. I had someone who who is not in this church comment to me a while back after worshiping with us, y'all pray so long. Well, it is true that there is a kind of pharisaical praying that for a pretense makes long prayers. We're going to get to that at the end of the next chapter. But you can never have too much sincere prayer offered up in heartfelt Christian piety to the Lord. The Puritans used to say, pray until you pray. One author says what they meant is that Christians should pray long enough and honestly enough at a single session to get past the feeling of formalism and unreality that attends not a little praying. We've all experienced that, have we not? So let us pray. Pray in formal settings when the church is called to prayer. I would urge you to make it a non-negotiable in your life that unless you are providentially hindered, when the church is called to prayer, seek to join your hearts with God's people. Pray in informal settings, when you're driving to work, when you're doing the laundry, when someone shares a particular burden or need with them, instead of simply saying, I'll pray for you, pray with them right then, And then pray for them as you depart. Go on praying for them. Pray privately. Pray privately when it's just you and the Lord. Pray publicly with your family and your friends when you're out and about with your brethren here at church. Pray. May this spiritual house be a house of prayer. May our homes be houses of prayer. Now look with me at verse 47. And he was teaching daily in the temple. 
In the span of just two verses, two back-to-back verses, you find the two central themes that the apostles were called to carry on and insisted must be the characteristic features of faithful ministry in the church. Prayer and the ministry of the word. That you remember is why the diaconate was raised up so that the apostles could give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Christ goes into the temple and he exercises his authority as if he owned the place, which he did. And you can see the divide. You can see the divide in the response that he received. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men were seeking to destroy him. And then you have, on the other hand, the genuine hangers-on, those who can't get enough, those who are hungry. They want to hear him. They want to know him. Chapter 20 and verse 1 says Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. He was evangelizing. Again, there's this schism between those who believe and those who resist him. Now, what do you do with those who are receptive to the good news of the gospel? Well, that's obvious. You praise God. You rejoice. Then you go on discipling them. You build them up in the most holy faith until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And what do you do, though, about those who oppose you, those who resist you? How do you deal with that? The rest of this passage deals primarily with people in that category, those who resist Christ's message and ministry. And it serves as a very helpful model of how to go about dealing with hostility and opposition to the gospel message. If you look at chapter 20 and verse 2, you see that again, you have this whole triumvirate of, of Jewish leadership there coming against Jesus, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders. That's the Sanhedrin that are coming to Jesus. And clearly they're, they're all very frustrated as they, 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 they see Jesus' intervention in the temple. They witness his audacity, if you will, to barge in, to carry on teaching every day the way he was, the impact he's having on the crowd. And so they do the only thing that they know to do. They try to trap him. They say, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. Jesus isn't a member of the Sanhedrin. He isn't a priest from the line of Aaron. So who does he think he is? Waltzing into the temple the way he does. Everything here centers on this issue of authority. That's the big question at hand. Now, if you look at Jesus' response, you notice that he focuses the issue even more. He shows them that there are really only two options here. There are two possible answers at play. If you look at verse 3, he answered them. I will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Why does Jesus bring up John the Baptist when it is his authority that the Sanhedrin is concerned with? Well, John's prophetic calling, we know, was to prepare the way for Jesus. 
He was there to, to point the way to Christ. And so you see what is at stake here. If they concede that John the Baptist was from God, they would have to admit that Jesus was too, that he received his authority from God. If John's authority was divine in origin, and he was just a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, if he was able to say, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me, how much more must Christ receive his authority from heaven? Well, the Jewish leaders know that Christ has them on the horns of a dilemma. They, they realize that he has them backed in, into a corner. They're in a pickle now, and they know it. And what I want you to see here in Jesus' response is there's really more than a response. It's an apologetic method. When we talk about apologetics, we're talking about the defense of the faith, the defense of the gospel. When Jesus turns the tables, I'm not talking about when he flips the tables, but when he turns the tables, metaphorically speaking, uh, on the Jewish leadership, and he asks them a question of his own, he's not skirting around their question. He's not trying to dodge their question. He is shifting the burden of proof onto his objectors. Jesus knows that the dilemma the religious leaders are in is there because of certain presuppositions that are working in their minds. Certain ways of thinking they already have in place about who he is. When they ask him about the source of his authority, that was not a sincere question. We know that already as readers of Luke's gospel because we have seen these men come against Christ over and over again. Jesus knows that. These men have already come to their own conclusions about who Jesus is, and so no amount of facts or argumentation are going to change their mind. He cannot expect to simply provide them with the evidence because the evidence has already been prejudged in their mind. And so what does Jesus do? This is so helpful. He exposes the presuppositions that have guided their interpretation of the facts. And then he calls them to give an account. Look at the way this unfolds. I think this will become more, and more, more clear as, as we make our way along. If you look at verse 5, you get an inside view of the huddle. The Jewish leaders mull things over. They look at their options. It says, and they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? They can't say that. They cannot say that he is from, from heaven because they don't believe that. They don't believe in him. To say that his authority is from heaven would be to admit that they have been wrong this, this entire time. They would have to humble their hearts. They would have to admit that they have turned aside 
from the one true God, that they, they, they rejected the message that John the Baptist came proclaiming that preparing the way for Jesus called for this message of repent, for this response of, of repentance. Which meant in turn they would have to admit they, that they were wrong about Jesus. They were wrong about their need of him. And this is a crisis that everyone who has ever been presented with the gospel has to reckon with. Am I willing to humble myself to confess my sin, to lay down my reputation, my self-interest, my self-reliance, and simply to come to Christ with the empty hands of faith. These leaders have already taken their stand. They're unwilling to do that. Now, on the other hand, they can't say what they really think, that he's from man, They go on, they say, but if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. It may just be that when when they, they think over this possibility that they could be stoned, they're actually anticipating a charge of blasphemy on the on the part of the people coming against them. Denial of a true prophet, the Lord Jesus, would be regarded as tantamount to to being a false prophet who were to be stoned in the Old Testament. But the most important thing to see here is what set of values is governing the thoughts and intentions of their hearts as they work this over in their minds. Their concern is not to respond to Jesus in repentance and faith. Their concern is not to respond to the self-revelation of God. What is it? It's to maintain their grasp on the power and authority and influence that they have. Their concern isn't even that they'll give the wrong answer, but rather that the right answer would undermine their place of power They're being ruled by the fear of man, by self-interest, not the fear of God. And so they determined that it would be in their best interest not to answer at all. Now, how does Jesus respond to that? He doesn't. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the second part of of Christ's apologetic method, and you you see the wisdom in Christ's response, or you can call it a non-response in this case. First, he exposes their presuppositions, but then also we see here that he will not cast his pearls before swine. Brothers and sisters, when you have people who make it clear that their only intention is to scoff and to sneer at the message of the gospel, we are not called to continually submit the claims of of Christ to their scrutiny and ridicule. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 7 says, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who who reproves a wicked man 
incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Again from Proverbs 26 and verse 4. Do not answer a fool according to his folly or you will also be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he will not be wise in his own eyes. We must never become fools by disavowing the truth or by compromising the authority of what God has revealed about himself or by allowing those who have no knowledge of God to become the arbiter of what is true. To do so is to forget that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let's pray. Father, we bow our hearts before you this day, so thankful for your word. God, we are thank you for your son. We are thankful for his authority. We thank you, God, that it is a self-attesting authority. And Lord, we pray that we would be wise ourselves in the response in our response to the word that we have heard today. God, that where we have been challenged or find that we have fallen short, we would repent. That we would love you for bringing us reproof. God, I do pray that this would be a house of prayer. That we would be eager to come every opportunity that we have to come hallowing your name expressing our dependence on you, always leaning on your everlasting arms. Uh, God, we thank you that you delight to hear us. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us a Savior and a mediator in the Lord Jesus Christ, someone through whom we can come and we can let all of our requests be, be made known to you. God, it is through him that we offer up our prayers and our supplications with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.